This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, while we were waiting, I, I must confess, I uh, scroll through the different screens somewhat surprised and somewhat delighted by how many people I recognized. And as I would recognize them, I'd think, oh, this wonderful person, you know, who for reasons best known to themselves has set up a small book press, you know, which will never make them famous or rich, but it's what they love. Yeah. And this person who, for reasons best known to themselves, is a clown and uh, has an organization, if you can call it that, called Clowns Without Borders. And they go to refugee camps and, and put on um, clowning performances for the children in refugee camps. They said to me that when you make the children happy, the parents are happy. You know? um, and many more beautiful histories. Um, Uh, leaving me uh, deeply grateful that there is something in our lives asking us to bring forth the best we've got. And in my own foolish and limited way, that's what I'm going to try to talk about. Uh, But first of all, I want to apologize to those of you who thought you were going to hear it, hear and see a talk by Leanne. Uh, Leanne has had um, internet problems. She can't make, she, her internet is not working. So her Zoom is not working. So she's not on your screen. Uh, and I was asked to, uh, fill in, which I must confess is something I, uh, I like to do, you know? There, there was a, uh, a renowned uh, Tibetan teacher, renowned for many reasons, I must say, uh, Chogun Trumpa. And he would, when he was extraordinarily popular and and charismatic teacher, but he he had a habit of, in the middle of a talk, he would ask one of his students to stand up and give a spontaneous talk. And sometimes the person would talk and then they'd be finished. And then he would say, no, Keep talking. Um, 
each of us is in the midst of who we are, what we are. And if that isn't the unfolding of the Buddha Dharma, what is? It's this, this way to pause, as, as Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan said, when you find yourself where you are, practice occurs, actualizing the fundamental point. So for a moment, imagine that I was going to stop talking and you were going to start. <laughs> yes, you should laugh, Marianne. One day it'll happen. <laughs> um, so in, in, uh, in a few weeks, I'm, I'm going to uh, teach a course with uh, Gil Franzdahl and Fu Schrader called The Harmony of Vipassana and Zen. And so um, it has left me thinking about what the heck are we talking about? You know, uh, what, what do we consider, you know? I, Sometimes, I, I hope this term doesn't find you, uh, doesn't uh, offend you. Uh, Zen are Buddhist converts. You know, most of us, almost all of us, if I may generalize on our collective behalf, have come to these teachings. Um, we weren't born into them. Um, I, and so this notion of what is Zen and what is Vipassana now? Are we talking about what it was in the time of Bodhidharma, the time of Shakyamuni Buddha? Um, or are we talking about this Saturday in late March of 2021? Here at City Center of San Francisco Zen Center. Um, we started the day with meditation and then we had a full moon ceremony, which in Japanese is called Rakofusatsu, a ceremony that goes back to the time of Shakyamuni Buddha and probably goes back before then. Um, on the full moon, renewing our intention, renewing our vow. And then we do it now in a particular ritualistic way. So you might, might think, well, that's what you do at a Zen center. You meditate and then you do your time-honored rituals, expressing something about the spirit of practice that can't be turned into concepts and ideas. But then here at City Center, after that, well, we had breakfast, but then after that, there was a, a meeting uh, of 
the residents at city center about racial justice. Um, and then after that, we have a Dharma talk. And then this afternoon, there's a workshop on the wife that Shakyamuni left behind. I wonder when Dogen founded Soto Zen in Japan, if he thought, well, in a mere 800 years, they'll be talking about Shakyamuni's wife and how he left her behind. Uh, have we strayed here? Have we at city center? Have we strayed from the pure Dharma realm of Soto Zen? Or have we turned it into um, a contemporary adaptation that's relevant to the lives we're living. Yeah. I think it's a worthwhile question. Not simply as a, a th thoughts that then will translate into class, but for each of us, you know, what are my belief structures? What, what do I think I'm doing when I engage in spiritual practice? And then what, how is it to live my own beliefs, my own admonitions, values? Yeah. What, what is that? Somehow the title of this uh, teaching we're going to do in a couple of weeks, that's what it came down to for me, you know. And then one of the questions that came up for me, which I didn't like, was, does modern so-called contemporary, maybe uh, more modest words, is our contemporary expression of Buddhist practice does it have a social obligation? No? The, f the fact that now we would offer our students a, a series of workshops on, on a broad sense of racial justice, you know? And I mention it because when, I, when that thought first came to mind, I thought, you know, I don't like that. It's so complicated. It's so close to um, the interpretation of American history, of social structures, which are always complex and multifaceted. You know, it, it's, it's so much, um, you know, I think of us now certainly for me, um, and I don't know if this is the consequence of the age of COVID or just that I'm spending too much time looking at a computer screen. Uh, <laughs> but the turmoil of the world, you know. I read one article that said, well, 
have we returned to normal with mass shootings? You know, uh, I, I find it a painful, confusing, somewhat annoying consideration. Oh. But it reminded me of um, the, the ferocious challenge of living in the world we're living in, you know. And we don't have an alternative. Oh. The Dharma talk you would give is the full expression of your being, your spirituality, and how you're actualizing that spirituality. When I think of the full moon ceremony we do in Soto Sen, you know, and the way it's been crafted over centuries and centuries, adapted from what Shakyamuni did. I had the good fortune when I was young to be ordained in Thailand in the forests and do a full moon ceremony. It didn't look anything like what we do now in Soto Zen in San Francisco. But in some ways it carried the resonance of spirit that's within each of us. And to my way of thinking and feeling and acting, this is what Soto Zen is inviting us and challenging us to do. You know? Can you get in touch with how spirituality, its imperatives, have touched you, have moved you, have quieted you, have brought you into action? Yeah. All of these things. And what helps you get in touch? What helps you stay get in touch? And then what is your place in this great complex world? So as I pondered that, and I would encourage you, you know, I'm going to offer you my words, but please don't take it as some kind of orthodoxy, you know? Maybe if you ask me to give this talk a week ago, I'd have said something different. So this is what comes up uh, for me today, oh, actually the last two or three days. It, it was an acknowledgement of what was percolating in my mind and heart. Uh, and yet, even though it has that coincidence it also, um, for me, it touches back in some ways to who I think I've always been since I was a child. You know? Since I wandered in the dark inner city streets to church early in the morning and sat there 
in the darkness in this vast space. So what it's brought me to today, it's brought me to a particular Buddhist teaching. It's called the Bodhisattva Vows. And even the notion of Bodhisattva uh, has a variety of interpretations as to its origin. And I'm not going to belabor that point, but rather um, to try to say and describe how these vows, what the genesis of them in the original language is, is like, and then offer you my own notions. And I would hope in offering you my notions that would stimulate you to consider your notions as to how they apply to your life. I would offer you this notion, rather than thinking, oh, that are those ide- these ideas are something different from what I think. I would offer you this notion. Try on, these are exactly what you're thinking. And as these valves point towards action, try on, oh yes, and this is expressed in my life. So I hope something in that makes sense to you. In in the inquiry in Zen, We, we, we have a notion of inquiry that's called the turning phrase, you know? Sometimes it's challenging us to think in a radically different way, you know? As if to say, the Bodhisattva vows is exactly what my spirituality is about. Let me explore that notion. The Bodhisattva vows are what I'm doing every day. It's what I'm living, you know? It's how I'm influenced. Like the first one is, um, in, in the Chinese, there isn't personal pronouns, you know? The way we usually say it is, Beings are numberless. I vow to save them, you know? But that I is a construct within the English language to try to make it make sense. But if we said beings, numberless, vowing, crossover, that would be a more literal notion, you know? Beings, numberless, vowing, crossover. Um, And then what do we mean when we say beings? There's a delicious ambiguity 
in in the language. It, it can either mean beings, as in all beings, beings of the sky, beings of the earth, beings of the sea, or it can mean sentient beings. More like we're, we're addressing our relationship within the human race. And I would offer you this question. Are these two totally separate? You know? Are we not discovering that um, the welfare of the beings in the ocean and the welfare of the beings on the earth and the welfare of the beings in the sky is interwoven with the welfare of the human species. Can we attend to, can we be of service to one part of the array of beings and ignore others? And the disposition of the bodhisattva vows, in, in a way, they're saying, uh, pay attention, notice how it is, and live your life as an expression of what you noticed. And then this notion of crossing over, it, it, it's, it's an ancient Buddhist notion. And the, the notion simply is saying, or maybe not simply, but it's saying, moving from the sense of isolation, separateness, moving from the sense of what really matters is what works for me. To heck with all the other beings, you know. <laughs> I'm in this for me. Uh, moving from that and crossing over into, you know, which our ecology, our science, you know, the, the very biomes that flow through our being, you know, what's happening in our gut is a seething uh, process uh, that is the more we learn about it, the more extraordinary we are, uh, we discover it is. Um, so moving from separate, isolated being to this intrinsically interconnected ecosystem of being. You know? This is simply how it is. And can we attune to that? You know? Can we let it influence how we hold our perspectives, our judgments, our analysis, of what's going on within us 
what's going on within our society, what's going on within our world. Some of the slogans that have occurred to me over the years are, I remember going back to Northern Ireland where I grew up, where we were a divided community. We were, we were all from, we were all Christian, but we were from different Christian sects. And since we were from different Christian sects, we held each other with great suspicion and often animosity. Um, and the notion that came was, there's only us. There is no us and them. There's only us, you know. And as we look at these tragedies tearing us into different groups, you know, politically, socially, now in the United States and actually in many parts of the world, you know, how us and them is such an appealing proposition for us as humans. But I'd offer you that notion as the first bodhisattva vow. There's only us. Them is just an interesting variation of us. Whatever their race, whatever their sexual orientation, whatever their nationality, whatever their ethnicity, um, whatever age, whatever class structure, social structure. They're just an interesting part of us. You know, my own simple mind, this is how I think of the first Bodhisattva vow. It's just us. Endlessly diverse. Innumerably diverse. Every single one of us is a unique wave on the ocean of existence. Somehow can we let that, can we let that in so deeply that it's almost like to use that delightful English expression, we have a change of heart. That us becomes as relevant, maybe even more relevant than me. makes me think of hearing the, the wonderful uh, civil rights person, John Lewis saying, I'm in this for the long haul. And I thought, ah, now wouldn't that be the Bodhisattva vow? I'm in this for the long haul. There's a wonderful implication in how the bodhisattva vows construct the challenge of being alive 
it's a, they offer a kind of enormity to the challenge. No? And then vowing to do it. Us is enormously diverse. I vow to promote, to live as if, to su support the delight of its interbeing. What's more delightful than to walk in the woods and listen to the birds and the wind blowing through the trees and to see the different creatures running around, you know? Something in us comes alive when we open to that. And the sky and the ocean, each with their delights. We give, we receive. All beings turns us and we open to being part of all being. So this is the first Bodhisattva vow. And then the second Bodhisattva vow is um, somewhere in our restlessness, in our notion of competition, in, in our notion of, but it's either you or me, it's either us or them. We can't all thrive. Somebody has to be on the end of suffering and someone has to be on the end of privilege. Um, And within Buddhist teachings, that creates within us a, an afflictive state of being. It's a distressing state, you know. You better be careful because they're going to get you. You better stay safe. Maybe you should attack first, you know. Um, The second Bodhisattva vow says, afflictions endlessly arise, vowing, and then I'm, getting, taking, I'm taking a liberty here using this term, vowing not to get hooked. Maybe more literally it would say, vowing to abandon, abandon the implications of the, the competition between us and them. Oh. These afflictions, that impulse will endlessly arise. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Or if you are shocked and surprised, um, Hold it close to you. Let it teach you 
pains that us and them, competition and aggression, the pain it creates. And in your compassion, let your heart soften. Let something release. Let something go. Beings are numberless. The afflictions that arise within the human being constantly arise. They're constantly there as a challenge. And the third Bodhisattva vow is that all this can be a teaching. Whether it's a teaching of the wonderful goodness, you know, because I was looking around and I was thinking, oh, and this person with their wonderful career in Washington, DC, and yet this part of them that's an utterly devoted Tai Chi practitioner. And this person who has this successful career and along with it has spent their whole adult life practicing the way of compassion and awakening. Uh, something in us wants to be such like that. Maybe the Bodhisattva vow is simply saying, please remember, this is your heart's desire. This is who you truly are. No. And as a bonus, this is what will alleviate your afflictions. This is what will uh, bring joy. You know? This is what will fill the world with beauty. This is what will leave you uh, in a state of gratitude. You know? That being of service to this interbeing um, is a win-win situation. No. It's like as far as from the, it's as opposite to us or them, you or me surviving. Uh, it's, as, it's as opposite to that as can be imagined. And in the Buddhist term is Dharma gates or Dharma upper teachings opportunities or teaching opportunities, learning opportunities. You know, Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, he liked to use the term beginner's mind. You know, we're always available to learn. 
always available to learn. And then the fourth one is um, Buddha way, unsurpassable, vowing, become. Buddha way, unsurpassable, vowing, become. You know, we might trip up on the notice, on the, on the notion of unsurpassable. Okay, the Buddha way, not the Christian way, not the Muslim way, you know, not the Jewish way. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. See, we're the top dogs. It's not what it's saying. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually saying the spark of the divine is everywhere and in everyone. That's what makes it so um, unable to be quantified. It, it cannot be uh, trapped within some dogma. Not, it can't be trapped within some fixed way of thinking. It doesn't fit within some trite admonition. Everywhere you turn, it's expressing itself. Everywhere you turn, the expression of it is a teacher. Everywhere you turn, um, demonstrates its interbeing. And something in us yearns to be just that. That abundance of interbeing. And we have a tendency to mistake it and, and try to turn it into a dogma. We have a tendency to um, somehow, in, in the midst of our afflictions, attempt to um, express it through aversion or desire or even our anxieties and confusions. So the Bodhisattva way is offering us um, a gift and a challenge. Of, of this radical interbeing that, that can alleviate with the deep compassion the human afflictive tendencies, that can illuminate how the human condition and how we're living it is offering us endless teachings and it can inspire us to have this change of heart that, that can um, move our way of being. 
Um, and to me, you know, the, these ideas, as I say, these are my ideas. Make up your own. And I would just say to you, but let them guide your heart. Find within your own workings that which draws forth your heart and mind, that inspires, you know, that enthuses, you know, that, that which will prompt you to call you call you to action you know? not because you should you know not because you're trying to meet someone else's demand or you're trying to look good in front of somebody else but because something in you feels like this is how to live a life you know And even if you think, oh, well, you know, that guy sounds like he really means it, but I think what he's saying is, you know, BS. Fine. Make up your own. <laughs> it's like... As Mary Oliver said, there's a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the earth. And let me close with um, a piece of a poem. Uh, now, why am I doing that? I have no idea. Uh, other than it, uh, to me, it says something. Uh, to me, it's like Shakyamuni holding up a flower and saying, everything I'm trying to communicate, this flower does a better job at that than I do. Um, the poem is called Everything is Waiting for You. It's by David White. And I'm just going to read the last piece a little bit. The stars are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. The tiny speaker in your phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness. Ease into conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge 
and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.